Pure Media Presentation. Good morning, Dan Hicks. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? It's been too long. Hello, world. My name is Ryan Lindsay, and this is my podcast, Self Quarantine, presented by Fusha Media. It's a podcast with frank and honest conversations about sports and life, from the sporting world to the real world, dealing with this pandemic. This week's guest is the voice of golf in some of the biggest events at the Summer and Winter Olympics, Dan Hicks, who I spoke to bright and early in the morning Pacific time this week, or at least it was early here in Seattle. Even though Dan's been answering my calls for almost 20 years, I didn't take that for granted. So when Dan said he was available at Zero Dark 30, I was ready to go. Along with his wife, Hannah Storm of ESPN, they make up the sports broadcasting power couple. If you have a comment or question about past episodes or a suggestion for a future one, follow and interact with us on social media, Twitter, SQuarantinePod, Instagram, SelfQuarantinePod, and our company accounts on both platforms is at Fusha Media. Just like at jtalby underscore 24 underscore did on Instagram by giving me the fire emoji when I posted a picture of my computer screen getting ready to record this interview. Be on the lookout for promotional videos and logos that the Fusha Media team will post about that week's episode, hopefully to get you interested. If you like the show, please rate and review us on the app that you found us. If there is an app that you can't find us on, please email me, ryan at fushamedia.com. Dan Hicks has been at NBC since 1992 and has covered every Olympics that NBC has been broadcasting since then. And he's one of the premier voices in golf. He's also called Notre Dame football and the NBA when the network had the rights. Which leads to how we started our conversation. We were talking about the only thing that sports fans have had to talk about lately, and that was Last Dance, the Michael Jordan Bulls documentary. And Dan talked about meeting Michael Jordan for the first time before a Bulls playoff game. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty cool. And um, you know, I would I would once in a while I would go out on the road to do uh, to cover series during the playoffs, and a lot of times they were you know we NBC had all the playoff games, so most of them. And so I would be called into duty from doing golf or gymnastics or whatever else I was doing just to help out the first few weeks of the playoff season. So I got assigned uh, several Chicago Bulls games. Usually they were the one seed and I would go out there versus the eight seed, whatever. And then um, so this is the this was the time when Jordan's back was acting up and he was kind of every once in a while, you know, it'd be like everybody wondering, you know, how's he doing and how's he feeling and is he going to play And in this particular game? That was the case even more so. And I'd never met Michael Jordan. And so our producer saying, Dan, you know, geez, you know, you got to go out and you got to find out what's going on with Michael Jordan. Is he going to play? Because he'd come out for the, uh, he had not come out for the pregame warmups. And so I'm thinking, what am I, you know, how am I going to find this? How am I going to find this bit of news out, whatever? So back in those days, and even today, I'm pretty bold. I, I, I decided I was going to go into the Chicago Bulls locker room, have my NBC mic flag you know, on. And I just went, I just went into the locker room and there was nobody there to stop me, which I found was kind of weird. 
maybe not so much because the, the, the team was warming up going through their warm-up drills out on the court without Michael Jordan. So there was even more, you know, wondering if he was going to play mm-hmm. or not. So I walk in, and it's funny, when I was watching The Last Dance, you see those shots of the locker room, and you go in, and then you go to the to the back right room is like a training room where, mm-hmm. where, where MJ would hang out. So I'm walking in there. The place, there's no one in the lock, locker room because everybody's out. I walk in there. And I noticed some, I hear some activity in the back right training room table. So I walk in there and again, Michael Jordan's got no idea who I am. I'm, I'm the new reporter. It's not like I'm a familiar face covering the NBA beat. I, I, you know, chances of him knowing me are just about zero, unless he's watched a little bit of golf. But by then I wasn't doing much golf hmm. and I wasn't doing the golf that I do now. So I walk in there and I, I come literally almost face to face with Jordan and the trainer who is working on his back and Jordan is on his stomach and the guy's working on his back and Jordan kind of turns on the training table, looks at me. And I said, Hey, Michael, uh, Dan Hicks with NBC. I just want to, you know, sorry to do this. I just was looking, you know, to find out if you were going to play everybody out there wants to know if you're going to play. I know you have bad back. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, hey, kid, you can tell him I'll be out there. I'll, I'm, I'll be ready to go. And I just thought, first of all, I thought he was going to, you know, rip me for going in there without, you know, announcing it. Yeah. He couldn't have been, he could not have been cooler. And um, I just thought, you know, so I run out, I do my report, and I'm like, I just talked to Michael Jordan in the training room, and he says he's ready to go. So it was pretty cool. So that was my first, uh, my first experience with Michael Jordan. So it's been, it's been fun to been fun to watch the last dance and you know there was I mean he he's 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 always been my guy. I mean I, I got those Air Jordan first basketball shoes. I used to play a lot of basketball and I got a pair of those and it just brought back all sorts of great memories. How much have you interacted with him in the golf region? Just because he's such a big golfer and you see him at you know, see him at Ryder Cups and stuff like that. How much have you interacted with him since then? Have you ever brought that up to him? Oh yeah, I, I I'm not sure if I brought that particular incident up to him, but I've definitely seen him. He used to go to every single Ryder Cup, and I remember all the way back, dating back to I believe '97, he started going at Valderrama. I know he was there at Valderrama. He might have been there at Oak Hill, but I for sure remember him at Valderrama '97, '99. He would go across the pond, to, you know, and that was over in Europe. So I would see him there and, you know, a couple times interviewed him. He was fantastic. And through the years, he'd play in our Celebrity Golf Championship, which is in Lake Tahoe, which mm-hmm. is a great celebrity golf event. And I, I still have a picture of him with my daughter, who was probably seven years old at the time. She's now 23. Oh, and uh, there's a picture of him. He's practicing on the range, and I had her with me. And she came to, it's kind of like a daddy, go, uh, daughter goes to work with dad, you know, kind of weekend. I brought her out. And, with all the celebs and he was nice and posed with a picture with her. And it goes all the way back to earlier this year, um, just before this whole uh, quarantine things happened. Hannah, my wife and I were at uh, David Stern's funeral in New York city at radio mm. city music hall. And we're sitting in there. I'm in, I'm in there with uh, like Mike Breen and Mike Tirico and some other guys. And my, my wife and I were sitting there. I look over to the left, you know, at the far left wall near the wall, on the aisle is uh, 
Zamad Rashad, who I've known for years, and Michael Jordan. And I go, wow, there's Michael. So Hannah goes, yeah, we got to say hello. And I go, God, you know, us and like the entire building is going to go over there and say hello. She goes, no, no, no. And Hannah knows him through the years. And he is cool. It's just a matter of getting to him. So we walk over and he's like, hey, Dan, how you doing, man? Good to see you. And he's got this new golf course down in Florida, right? Mm. And he's he said, you got to come down and play. You know, he's got this, I guess this really cool private club that he just opened. And so I was going to go down there and play with him, um, you know, when we went down and did the Florida Swing this year. And I just it just makes me so mad that uh, <laughs> that this, uh, you know, COVID-19, which yeah. how tragic it is, obviously happened. But that prevented me from going down there and seeing him again and playing golf with him uh, for the first time. So uh, just a fantastic guy. And, uh, just, I think, uh, I think when we saw it, if anybody, I, I'm a huge, huge LeBron James fan as well, but, but Michael is the man in my book. You were on the air, uh, one of the last sporting events before everything closed down players championship. Take me through the events that led up to the cancellation, uh, and the event closing down on Friday morning. Yeah, this thing happened so quickly. You know, we started our swing. We got, uh, you know, we did, uh, you know, just a few events before we got to the Players' Championship and what, what was to be nine in a row. And we get to the Players' Championship and the whole COVID-19 uh, virus affair starts building. But still, I remember even by, I hosted what they have, what they call the Players' Championship, which is a military appreciation day, which is a concert uh given in addition to everybody packed in along the amphitheater of the 17th green there the island green and it was really not given much thought to it but by then the momentum and the daily reports had been changing so dramatically each and every day i remember by wednesday talk you know heating up about how we're going to be able to play this golf tournament which was crazy after seeing this scene on Tuesday. That's how quickly it just spread. And mm. I remember going out to eat on Wednesday night with some Golf Channel and NBC colleagues. And I remember saying, is this golf tournament going to happen? And I, I and I just thought, well, it I think it's a 50-50 chance. Then the next day they announced that it's going to happen, but they're going to be without fans on Friday. So we played the first round. There were fans on Thursday. So we thought, okay, it's going to be this uh, crazy scene of no fans. But by the end of Thursday, the complexion of the reports that we were hearing had changed. So even more dramatically that I thought there's no way they're going to play this, this golf tournament. There's no way they can. Sure enough, we get the announcement uh, later that day in the evening that uh, it, had been, it had been canceled. And so that was that. And it was uh, very strange to fly home on a Friday uh, especially at an event of that magnitude, the Players' Championship is the biggest event on the PGA Tour uh, that the PGA Tour holds. And so little did I know that we'd be sitting here today, you know, months later after yeah. that, and still no sports. So it, it's, it seems it's very surreal, um, but uh, it, it is what it is, as they say. So who had a better, bigger effect on them canceling it? Was it Rudy Gobert or Rory McIlroy's comments? Because Rory came out and was, was pretty strong about, you could tell he was concerned about the whole thing. Yeah, I think it was a combination of all those things. Mm. I think uh, Rudy getting t testing positive uh, just put the whole sports world on notice. It did, yeah. That, uh, that you know, 
and I, and I think it's, it's kind of ridiculous to think that, oh, well, you know, maybe the sports will go on. Maybe there won't be an athlete test positive, but you know, th- those were really ignorant thoughts because this affects everybody. It's in every corner of the world, every corner of the globe. And I think we're just still learning how devastating and how easily this spreads. And so, uh, I hope that, uh, I hope that we don't jump back in to everything too early. I'm, I, I can't wait to get sports back, but I, the last thing we all want to see is to jump in too early and have to jump back out because I think that would be even tougher than the predicament that we've been in right now. And that's waiting for sports to happen. How surreal was it? Because you know, you're preparing to do this uh, event, you know, it's Thursday, Thursday night. You're thinking, well, maybe, you know, and then all of a sudden they tell you Friday morning, it's done. You're done. You go home. I mean, how weird was that? Very weird. Never had it happen in the close to 30 years that I've been covering live sporting events. Never had anything like that happen. We've had, you know, I haven't been involved in the ones that have had no fans, but have gone on, but nothing, nothing like this where it was like, we, you know, we were checking out of the TPC Marriott, the Sawgrass Marriott right there, which is right next to the golf course. And it was like a, I don't know how to describe it. Um, other than like, it just became a ghost town. And it was like, everybody just kind of scattered. And there wasn't a lot of talk. There wasn't a lot of, you know, chit chat. Everybody was just in, in a, a hurry. And, you know, obviously had a concern to get back to their families. And I remember getting on the plane, which is the last plane I've been on, which is crazy with the travel life that I've led. The last plane ride that I got was March 10th, I think was the cancellation of that, something like that anyway. Um, but that's the last one. I remember getting on and a woman next to me was wiping down her seat. And I go, God, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty over the top. And I was thinking that. And now it's obviously not. And I think, uh, you know, very concerned to get on a plane again. Um, but when we do, when we, when we, when that happens, we'll you know, hopefully be farther along and, you know, everything. So we'll see. So like you said, it's been about two months since this whole thing happened. And now your international summer travel schedule is, is pretty free. <laughs> How did you feel um, when you heard uh, that both the Open Championship and the Tokyo Olympics were going to happen this year? Oh, it was it was tough. It was very disappointing. The Olympics are something that you prepare for, you know, at least a year out for. So we've been building up to Tokyo for that length of time. You're getting ready. In my in my case, I do swimming, so I'm already looking at the Olympic swimmers and the possibilities of the matchups and who's going to be good and who's going to be, you know, the new up and comers and you're kind of getting geared into the whole thing. And there's nothing like it. And we were, you know, even closer to the swimming trials happening in June. And so to have that taken away was like, wow, um, really crazy. It did help when it was announced that it would be that the Olympics would be happening a year later. Because that, that's one of those events you don't want to miss out on. And not, not just our broadcast team, which we have the privilege of doing it every four years and every two years for a winter and a summer. One of the best broadcast the, teams. Yeah, yeah, just the, just the athletes themselves to the disappointment that they must have had if there wouldn't have been an Olympics. So now they're going to get a chance. It's going to affect some still adversely, and it's going to be an advantage for some, even though even even if, you know with the, the year delay. So uh, it was tough. And then the Open Championship was – was tough too because that's the only one of the majors that may not happen the other three have been rescheduled so 
the only saving grace to it all is that I was, I was, I'm a member of Wingfoot, which is uh, the club that's hosted the mm-hmm. U.S. Open, yeah. and that's like you know 20 minutes down the road from me where I live, and I wasn't going to really be able to go to go to the U.S. Open. Not that I go to golf tournaments when I'm not doing them, because <laughs> Fox has the rights to the U.S. Opens, but it was it was going to be fun to hang out there. But we had the Olympic trials that weekend, and I would have had to travel to Omaha to do those, and so I would have been kind of out of the mix, you know, on a golf course that I play all the time hosting the U.S. Open. So now it's going to be in mid-September. And so I'll have a chance. It's in mid-September is a gorgeous time of year um, up here in the Northeast. So to be able to hopefully go to that U.S. Open and see all the members and the crew and the staff that has worked so hard to host that championship, to see, you know, Wingfoot staged and showcased once again for a U.S. Open uh, could be really special in, in mid-September. And then uh, I won't be long after that. Hopefully I'll get on a plane and go to uh, – go to the Ryder cup, which is scheduled the week after the U S open. So it's going to be a jam packed, hopefully fall, uh, sports schedule. Ryan. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be, honestly, it, it's because you're trying to jam all the sports at the end of the year, which actually I, I want to bring up to you. We talk about the U S open is always in June. The masters is always in April. Now you have the U S open before the masters and the masters are in, has anyone ever golfed in Augusta in, in October? I mean, what, what, or November? I mean, what's it like? How's the weather and the seasons gonna gonna affect the, these tournaments and, and the anomaly it's gonna be? Yeah, well, just looking at the majors, the um, the PGA Championship would be in the first week of August, which it used to be in that spot though, of... though, wasn't it? I mean, it used to always be in August. Yeah, so it's not that big, right, as right. big a difference. Right, as... so that's not that. Yeah. that's not that big a deal. Yeah. It's scheduled to be in Harding Park. Who knows if it's gonna be there? But uh concentration of the virus up there so intense but you know you look at like we just talked about wingfoot in september uh should and could be beautiful as long as the weather cooperates but it's not you know mid-september it's still not that still not that dicey really it's only about five six degrees average cooler so the conditions in the rough could be even more lush because uh the grass grows even better that time Mm. of year uh so that that's no problem and Augusta in November will be cooler. There's no doubt about that, but it'll be great. It'll be in as good a condition as it possibly can be. And, and, and when you're talking Augusta national and what they do there with agronomy and working their golf course, that believe me is going to be no problem other than the fact that it could be, could be chilly at times, depending on what kind of weather forecast you get in November. But um, I played golf down there uh, in November and then January, and it's doable. And I think uh, everybody's just going to have to, and they will, uh, accept the conditions that are that are going to be for everybody else in the tournament. You, when you brought up the Ryder Cup, you, it sounded like you weren't as 100% confident that was going to happen because, I mean, you're dealing with international players coming over to America, first of all. And then just the sight of a Ryder Cup without fans, possibly— what do you think the chances are that it actually will go off? Good question. Um, I think, first of all, that without fans, the Ryder Cup, I think, will be affected most because it just – and all these sporting events depend on fans. It's, and, I, and I think we got a little bit of that when we watched the match, uh, the Taylor made driving relief match on NBC uh, you know, earlier this past weekend. Fans matter a lot, and at a Ryder Cup, they're so much a part of the scene. And even Brooks Kepka has said, I don't know if I'm into a Ryder Cup without fans. 
you know, like he maybe wouldn't play because it didn't have fans. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. But that's Brooks. He says, you know, what's on his mind. It's true. Uh, I, I think, you know, you make a, you make up a good point. When, when the PGA Tour season is set to begin on June 11th coming up, guys that have been quarantining in Europe are going to have to come over two weeks ahead of time to quarantine before, you know, the, the PGA Tour season starts over here in the U.S., and they're going to have to stay over here. They can't pop over in between tournaments and go see their families uh, if they happen to live in Europe and come back. It just doesn't make sense. So Tommy Fleetwood, he's a guy that's going to bypass a lot of it, you know, because you know, he's got a family, he's got kids, and versus a Matthew Fitzpatrick from England who says, I'm all in, I'm coming over, I'm quarantining, I'm going to play a bunch of tournaments. Rory McIlroy said he's going to play a bunch. So we're going to see good fields. But getting back to the Ryder Cup, you know, I think by that time, you'll have a U.S. Open beforehand and probably the vast majority, obviously, the guys that play in the Ryder Cup are going to be playing in the U.S. Open. So they'll be over here prepared for that already. So they will have made a decision long before then. You know, the FedEx Cup playoffs are ending on Labor Day weekend, which is later than usual. A lot of the guys in the Ryder Cup would be playing in that. So, you you know, you basically have guys that are probably going to be over in the States, even if they are stationed or, or based over in Europe, are going to have to make arrangements to be over here for a longer time than usual. But as we know, there's a ton of players that play for Europe that live here in the States. You know, Jupiter, Florida is full of them, Rory McIlroy, and on and on. You know, guys, you know, Ian Poulter lives in Florida. So I don't think that'll be as big a deal uh, as we might think. I think it'll be a bigger deal just to see if we have the thing held in the first place. Yeah. So you've been preparing yourself to cover golf without spectators? Mm. I don't know if you prepare any differently. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, it, it's, you know, it's going to be strange. It, you know, it, it would be weird. I mean, the first four events are without fans. Uh, we don't have those events. Those are CBS events. We don't jump on board the PGA Tour again until the FedEx Cup playoffs, which are in August. Okay. So that's a lot of dishes being done by me, a lot of laundry <laughs> being done by me, and a lot of other things here at home before <laughs> that even happens. So hopefully, who knows, maybe there'll be fans by then. Maybe mm -hmm. there won't be, but if there, there aren't, it'll be interesting. We'll have to, you know, I, th I think the fans are what fuel not only the players, but announcers too. You, you feel that adrenaline. Like, can you imagine if we would have done the 99 Ryder Cup and, you know, in the, in the putt that Dick Emberg called, you know, and, and, or, you know, the putt that I called at Tiger Woods in 2008 without fans, would it have been, you know, would I have been as excited? Uh, probably not. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting to think how it might sound and feel, but definitely sports fans that we're all going to, we're all going to find out as these sports uh, events get cranked up are, are going to be missed more than we possibly could have imagined. You've been covering the Olympics since 1996. What's your favorite location? Ooh, uh, you know, I actually did the 92 Barcelona. Olympics, oh, okay. Is, My bad. Wikipedia. Yeah, that's, that's Blame right. Wikipedia on, on that gotta, one. You know, I would expect better homework from you, man. I know it's early out there on the West Coast, yes. but come on. No, no, that one fell through the crack. No, 96 was my first play-by-play uh, -play okay. doing swimming in Atlanta. I did like – we had the studio stuff in, in uh, Barcelona when I got hired that year in 92 by NBC. But anyway, my favorite Olympic venue, that's hard. There's obviously my favorite Olympics that I've done, broadcast. But as far as the venue goes, I would probably – 
it might be a toss-up between Sydney, Australia, which is just a incredible city with a combination of the cosmopolitan feel and the beaches and the and the laid back style and the, the beauty, the sheer beauty of the place. And maybe Barcelona, those first Olympics that I mentioned, because uh, my family, my wife and I and our girls have uh, always been a big fan of Barcelona. Uh, it's just a me too. That city has it. Yeah. That city has it all. It's, it's awesome. Got food. Yeah. It's got art. It's got beauty. It's got it's got it all. So maybe those two. I, I love I love Spain, the country. I've been there a couple of times to Madrid and Barcelona, and I want to go back every time. So oh, yeah. I completely awesome. agree. Awesome place. Um, you kind of mentioned your favorite Olympics. What is your favorite Olympics? I think it'd have to be hands down Beijing yeah. Olympics 2008 because of what Michael Phelps yeah. did. <laughs> I mean, that was just magical. We went to work. We went to the pool every day thinking, what's going to happen today? And uh, the odds were, you know, against that happening, really. I mean, because Phelps needed a couple races to go his way that really could have gone the other way and in the end could have gone the other way especially. But, but you know, he uh, by one one-hundredth of a second, he was able to pull out those uh, that 100-fly race in the, in the 4 by 100 free relay, which will go down as – one of the great races in Olympic history, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all that said, that that one tops the list, and I think by the time it's said and done, I don't know if another one will compare. It's just a just a sensational, unfathomable, unfathomable individual performance by by Michael Fell. And people have no. I try to convince people how unbelievable that performance was. I mean, seventeen swims through the course of eight days in the program that he had, I mean, cause you got all these other specialists who are waiting. Okay. One guy does the hundred fly. That's all he does. Phelps in the meantime is doing all of these, all of these events and he's still winning them all in a shortened amount of time to re, you know, to recover and, and get it done. It's just, it's one of the greatest achievements in sports history period. Do you have a good story about that experience? You and Rowdy, uh, you know, talking to Michael, any any kind of thing, any behind-the-scenes <laughs> things that uh, uh, people might not know about? Well, it's funny because you don't really get much contact with the swimmers once you start because they're just so sectioned off from you. They're in the Olympic Village. They're doing their thing. But I do remember, I, I remember one thing happening back in the 2004 Olympics in Athens, Greece. And that's when Phelps picked up his first Olympic medal. And um, medals, I should say. He won eight there as well. He won a medal. He got a, he got a gold in the 100 fly. After he got the medal, one of the first things he did was, and this is a story that was relayed to me by Bob Bowman, his coach, there was a woman in the USA Swimming uh, Organization who I can't remember her name, and it's not important anyway, but at, at one point told Michael Phelps when he was younger and working his way up, well, there's no way you're going to, there's no way you're going to, you know, get a medal in the 100 fly. It's just too short of a distance for you. You're a 200 fly guy, and you've got other events that you should concern yourself with. So uh, it's probably never going to happen. So, you know, and, and Phelps, like a Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. used that as motivation and as he as he saw Bob Bowman after winning the medal, he goes up to him and Bob's like, oh, God, wow, congratulations. The only thing Michael Phelps wanted to tell him about was that woman who said he couldn't win the medal. <laughs> I just thought, I, just, I mean, that's the first thing out of his mouth. And he, you know, like any, any, he, he was just all fired up about it. And so that, that, that I never forgot. And there's, there's, there's countless other 
you know, stories about Phelps and his work ethic. In fact, his work ethic and Tiger Woods' work ethic and the way they went about their craft and the way they, you know, fell down in, you know, in life and had to get, you know, had to get mm -hmm. themselves out from rock bottom. It's really mirrors. They, they mirrored each other. I mean, I called, I called Phelps Tiger Woods in a Speedo at one Olympics. And I think that kind of aptly described both guys as yeah. fiery competitors. Jordan's right in that same kind of category. These guys, you know, used motivation to fire themselves up. They just like, and if they, if there wasn't there, they kind of created it. Definitely could tell that from the documentary. You say anything, he'd just oh, yeah. find things, even things, even things that weren't true or, or or made up. He would just, oh, this person said this. <laughs> yeah, he made it. In fact, that one that one yeah. example, right, where he made it up. Yeah, he did. Just, just some sort of extra edge. Crazy stuff. Yes, it is. You and your wife are like the Jay Z and Beyonce of the sports broadcasting world. Oh, uh, wow. So, what's it like to have a spouse who's uh, just as accomplished or maybe more accomplished than you are in the same profession? It's it's pretty awesome actually, and the, you know to be to be honest, the last thing I the last person I thought I would marry would be somebody who did exactly what I do, you know, a sports broadcaster. It just doesn't you know I just didn't ever foresee that happening, but when it did, I think we've talked and we've talked about it in, you know through the years. I think it's actually worked to our advantage because you know we've raised three girls, and we know the demands of what we do business wise. We were committed to a family, first of all. And so when we got to these challenges, and believe me, anybody that has a family and has two working parents knows it's not easy. It's not easy even if you have one working parent. It's just tough. So we kind of, we, we definitely knew the demands of the business. And it wasn't like I had to explain to Hannah, well, I got to go do this event. And now I got to go, you know, I got to work late tonight. And I got to get on a plane early tomorrow morning. And you're really not going to see me much for the next couple of weeks. You know, I didn't have to really explain that too much to her because she knows how the business works. And it worked the other way because sometimes it would be Hannah that was traveling, although I did the bulk of the traveling. But we kind of made it work. We juggled. And I think the only way we got through these 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 tough parts of, of raising, especially young kids, was just understanding what the other person's going through. So that uh, in the end, that uh, that's worked out pretty well. I'd, I'd say it has. Uh, we all have had them, as if you do any kind of traveling. Uh, we've all had those horror stories. Tell me a good uh, Dan Hicks travel horror story. Oh, my God. <laughs> I got a lot of them. I, got a, I, bet. I have a lot of them. You know, actually, the, the worst story <laughs> happened with my family outside of traveling to a sports event. The sport event traveling faux pas have almost kind of like meld together. But we had a trip to Italy, which, which knocked them all out uh, a couple of years ago. And I'll keep this very short than, than the longer version. So we plan had this long trip planned. We were flying into Pisa, Italy. And we, I think, yeah. And so we, like about over the ocean, a guy started to have uh, a heart attack. And so we had to, we had to do an emergency landing in... Uh, where was it? Uh, Paris, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. So we had to do it. So our whole itinerary got messed up. Right. So then we end up in Rome and we can't get to Pisa where we need to go to go to the, to our, to this villa that we had had rented for literally a couple of years out. 
So we had to rent a car, had to get a bigger car than usual because it was the only one available. This is after four hours of waiting for the rental car in like 105 degree temperatures. There's no air conditioning in this airport, the rental car place. We get the car. We get the wrong directions. We end up on a mountainside in Tuscany somewhere. (laughs) The sun, the sun is starting to go down. We call the travel agent and go, where, you know, what I, I end up. I put the travel cord, I put the, I put the GPS coordinates in the system and they were, so that was right, but we had the wrong coordinate and we were literally at some farmhouse in the most obscure remote place you could possibly imagine. So now I've got this like eight passenger van, which is not the easiest to maneuver down these narrow roads. So now the sun's going down. It is so dark. And I end up going over the mountaintop down this remote road you can't even see in front of your face. The, the lights on the on the rental car don't work very well. Oh, no. Long story, long story even shorter. We end up finally at about ten o'clock at night meeting the guy that's going to take us up to this villa because those directions are going to be terrible to try to find. So we 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 actually have a, a, an incredible pizza and a glass of wine at this place, which is the only saving grace to any of this. So now we're ready to go up to we're literally 10 minutes away from our place, which happens to be on top of this mountain outside of this village. So this guy who speaks no English is leading the way. I've got my three girls, all of our bags, Hannah with me. We start driving up this narrow road. And I'm telling you, this road is so narrow. This van barely fits four wheels and in the in the rearview mirrors can barely get by trees and whatever. We finally get up near the villa. We have to make the craziest hairpin turn you've seen in your life. I, the wheels start spinning. <laughs> I look over to my left, no. and it is a straight drop <laughs> oh, down, down the canyon. <laughs> I, tell the no. girls, I tell the girls to get out of the car, right? Because this is not safe. If I'm going to, you know, if I'm, I, I can't kill us all here. If I go down, I, dad goes down. So they get out. One, you know, one of my girls is crying. It's that intense. Oh, no. I mean, I can sit here and talk about it, you know, like this now. It's that intense. The guy gets out, or the guy, the guy makes, he's got this little teeny, of course, European car. He makes it up. And I am spinning my wheels. And if I, and it's another, another thing is this is a, this is a shift car. It's not an automatic. It's a manual shift car. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to get up. The wheels are spinning. I bump the front end into the rock face, which is on the edge of the curve. Finally, gun it, get up the hill, get into the get into the driveway, and I'm telling you, this is probably all in a span of about 24 hours. This whole trip took. Oh, Exhausted, thinking we were going to die. Get up to the villa. It's got no air conditioning. It's hot as hell, and you know, it was just like I'm telling you. And I have I've left out a lot of other parts to it, but that is the worst and most trying travel experience I've ever had. I, ha- I hope I haven't bored the podcast viewers or listeners no. too much with that. They, but I think it, it, it was just beyond crazy. It, it's beyond even crazier than anything I've experienced at LaGuardia. And I have I have shared with my Twitter followers <laughs> some of those experiences, which are uh, which are somewhat legendary. Yes. Nothing, ca- nothing caps that one. Well, first of all, it's like your Chevy Chase and it's European vacation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm telling you. But you have too many kids and not a, and not a son, so that, that doesn't work out. <laughs> uh, 
this band was so big it was, it, it was crazy it was nuts. and i'm trying to shift gears yeah. up the, up this uh yeah geez. anyway so you mentioned twitter so you are a great <laughs> following on twitter and instagram especially during a, a pandemic and it's at dan hicks nbc quick plug for you uh so here, hey. here so here are a couple questions that that i have from viewing your social media yes uh, um through the years uh, I've seen you partake in some Johnny Walker. Is blue really worth it? Yes. Okay. Johnny Walker is my go-to guy. Uh, black label is the everyday drink. Blue mm. label on special occasions because it is the steepest of <laughs> yes, price-wise <laughs> of the Johnny Walker family. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reason I got into Johnny Walker was we did the 93 Ryder Cup, and that's when Johnny Walker used to sponsor the European Ryder Cup. They gave me a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue. I was like, what is this? It went up into the cabinet for years, maybe. And one night, I'm sitting in our apartment in New York City with Hannah. I was like, you know what? Let's try this Johnny Walker Blue. Put it on. Put it on. Uh, put it in the glass. Tasted it. It was so smooth. And I was uh, kind of hooked ever since. So Johnny Walker is is my go-to. Yep. Any other scotches or whiskeys that you recommend? Uh... There's, I have a lot of single malts, okay. but I don't drink those as much. Uh, I, I do I do a Johnny Walker before dinner most nights. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would uh, you know, I like okay. a tall Winnie single malt. Uh, Jameson's is good, Irish whiskey. Anything anything you drink over in Scotland or Ireland just tastes good. It could yeah. not even be that good. But if you're over there and you've just finished a round of golf, lucky enough to have done that, and you're, and you're sipping on one of those and maybe have a, Cuban cigar going, it does not get any better than that. I've really gotten into uh, bourbons uh, <clears throat> in the last um, probably year or so. So I, yeah, I my really... wife's into that. Yes, love yes, love, yeah. love, love some bourbons. We should talk. Uh, should get Hannah on so we can talk some bourbons. Uh, Gonna have to exactly. Your family likes to cook, and it seems like everyone is at uh, the uh, Hicks uh, hostel yes. during the quarantining uh, time. Uh, what's the best thing your wife and your daughters have made? Because they made they made I'm a telling, lot. I'm telling you, yeah, we I I put a fraction of it on my Instagram <laughs> stories and whatnot. The for Hannah Hannah's great. She just gets and I tell you, they they've honed and sharpened their skills in this quarantine, like a lot of people have too, because they just have the time to really put into it more so than usual. But I'm telling you, we made one night, and I think I documented it on the Instagram story. Uh, at some point, we made sushi. Made sushi like wow. like uh, like the guys, uh, like the experts, yeah. uh, you know, in the in the sushi bars do. And I was like, what? You know, they start pulling out this uh, bamboo like uh, wrap that looks more like a you know like a yoga mat. Anyway, that's where you wrap the sushi on and you like roll it. And my 19 year old daughter is like rolling sushi, and then. A couple, a couple of the rolls were a little sloppy at, at the first, and then like by the third roll, she had these things tight, and we got this fresh seafood tuna. We got you know this sashimi, and it was, I mean, like I felt like it was in you know Nobu, you know, it, it was that it was it was better than that. So that is one of the highlights, and that just that's the tip of the iceberg. They have come up. We've eaten like kings and queens. It's been. Uh, phenomenal and uh, but my you know my payback for all this stuff ryan is i i do the dishes man and it, 
And uh, it's worth that, it though. You're getting well fed. Uh, I've done more, my my hands are raw not only from washing my hands during this quarantine, but just uh, you know doing dishes. So I need to get some softer, you know, dishwashing liquid to uh, you know condition my hands because I'm a little worried about uh, you know the cracks uh, that have been uh, evolving here. So a couple more uh, pandemic uh, quarantine questions, and I'll let you go. I appreciate your time, Dan. Um, yeah. Books or movies or streaming shows that you've uh, recommend that you've seen through this uh, in the last two months? Yeah, done done quite a bit of both. Uh, let's see. Well, we you know we everybody you know it's funny we we joke that it seems like everybody watched The Tiger King like I did a year ago. So that <laughs> yeah. you, you did not watch it? No, did not. I did not want to partake. I, I, I'm not I a big reality it. show guy. Uh, <laughs> I would recommend. Okay, it. Um, all right. So. You know, my wife and I, Billions has just started up again, so we're watching that. We mm. like that. Although I'm not as I'm not as keen on it as I was in the earlier seasons and episodes. We we watched Hunters, which is oh, that's good. really good. Yeah, very intense. Dark. <laughs> Al Pacino's in it. Yeah, it's dark. It's it's good though, and it's violent, but it's good. It'll have you on the edge of your seat. Mm-hmm. We just started uh, this uh, series called Hollywood, which is uh, oh yeah, Netflix. Yeah, it's interesting. Good. Yeah, it, Ryan Hunter, yes. I think, is the Ryan Murphy. Director and Ryan Murphy. Ryan Murphy. Yeah, from Glee. So yeah, yeah there you go. Look at you. You're all over it. So I, I, that's been good. Uh, book wise, I just finished um, so Michael Bamberger, who's an excellent golf writer. And a lot of times, I don't I don't read a lot of golf books um, unless I I think. You know, they've got some potential to really interest me or be good. So he just did this book on uh, Tiger Woods. And, I'm, you know, the, the title of it escapes me, but it just came out. Michael Bamberger. And, yeah, Michael Bamberger. And so he uh, so I, he sent me this book and I read it and I thought, ah, you know, I'm, what am I going to learn? It seems like we all know everything there is to know about Tiger Woods. But it was it was really well done. Uh, it, it really delves into some subjects that obviously leave up, leave the opinion up to you as to you know how you formulate your own opinion about Tiger. But I would definitely recommend that for you know even the casual golf fan or just the person that wants to know a little bit more about what kind of makes Tiger tick. Because uh, it was uh, I thought I thought very well done. He's a great writer. Has a great way about how he writes. So that that's. Uh, it's one of the great recommendations right there from uh, at Dan Hicks, NBC. Uh, when's the last time you got a haircut and who did it? Okay. So I went from end of April, which is right before the players championship. And then the corn and then the whole thing happened in February. So I, what's that? End of February. You said end of, end of April. End of, uh, yeah, what am I saying? End of April. End of February. Yeah, okay, my, right. I can't even, so not a lot of people can remember what day it is in the quarantine. I can't remember, I can't remember the order of the months. <laughs> That's so, how bad it's gotten, right? Yes, it has. That's where we are. Yes, it That's is. Where, so, so thanks for correcting me that February comes just, before March. I, I wanted to I use really, this. So I didn't want to have to edit it out. So I wanted to make sure I got the right months here, Dan. I really appreciate that. So anyway, uh, this past Sunday, which I believe comes after Saturday, uh, I, my wife, my wife has been, you know, going up to Bristol to do ESPN Sports Centers, and mm-hmm. she has a makeup artist and a and a hair person. That has since stopped because of, well, anyway, that's a longer story. Yeah. They they have been coming to do her makeup in our guest house in our cottage, and where it's kind of a quarantine area over there. So. 
she says, yeah, this, this girl, her name's Daniela. She, she can cut your hair. Cause my hair was looking like, I was looking like Grizzly Adams and it was not a good look. So I went in there. I had the, the, the catch was I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning. Cause that's when Hannah is getting her hair and makeup. She's got to make the drive up to Bristol for, for uh, to ESPN to do the show. So that was the catch. I had to go over there at 5 a.m. So she actually took the shears to me over there and, uh, I, I look, uh, it's a little shorter than usual, which is fine. So uh, I should be good to go by the time uh, the FedEx Cup playoffs happen in August. <laughs> we'll see. My wife know, has yeah. done it. Uh, YouTube videos, and um, we tried, we couldn't even order um, like those uh, clipper sets. We tried going on Amazon and Best Buy, which we'd order it, and then it would cancel because they were out of them. So eventually, yeah. I found out my neighbor cuts his own hair, and he had an extra set that he hadn't ever used. So we just bought it off of him <laughs> just hey, to get hey, it. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. Exactly. Isn't it amazing how it amazing. these what, what's in stock and yeah. what's not in stock, and how long it takes. And a lot of times we'll say, "Yeah, thanks for your order, but you know, we didn't tell you it's not going to get here till 2021." Exactly. You know? And they, so, and they probably don't even know what day or month it is. So there you go. Yeah. And, and by the way, Ryan, 2021 comes after 2020. <laughs> I do, I do Thank know you. That as well. Thank you for that. So last thing yes. uh, I want to say, and this is on a personal note, um, you've been answering my calls, texts, emails since 2002, if you can believe that. On different, wow. It's on, been that long? It's been that Holy long. Cow. On different shows from local radio, national radio, to now a podcast from Beijing, because you, you called us, we, we set up an interview with Doug and Wolf in Phoenix, and you were walking around the streets of Beijing to now in Connecticut. And I just wow. want to, first of all, I just want to thank you for always making time for me. And the next question is, is why? <laughs> well, you know, you were a young kid back then, and you're still a lot younger than I am, obviously. And I, I could sense when I talked to you that you had um, a real passion for sports, a real passion for this sports broadcasting. And I told myself, if I ever made it in this business, <laughs> and, I, and I, I remember specifically asking guys when I was first coming up in the business for advice. And I remember the guys and people that helped me out. And I really remember the people that didn't really, you know, bother with the time it, it took to, to help a young person. So to answer your question, you were a really nice guy who came prepared. You were organized. You knew what you were doing, and that that was that was one of the things I told myself: help 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 people out that, uh, wow. that you know may need a little bit of a helping hand, and everybody does. Well, so I, I really that appreciate that. Now, now, now that, that I'm a podcast established podcast <laughs> yeah. superstar, it just it's it's now my honor. Oh to be on my your goodness. Podcast. And oh. I will probably be calling you, uh, you know, in the next few weeks to see if there's another slot for me. So it's, it's all come full circle here. Right? All right. All right. There he is. One of the longest guest relationships that I have at a nice 18 years, if you can believe that. Just means I'm old. How about his reaction when I told him the first year that he came on one of the shows I produced? He is not the longest running Pretty sure that honor goes to college basketball insider Seth Davis, who I've been working with since 1998 and was guest number three on this podcast. Once again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram to get a preview of what that week's episode is going to be all about with our 30-second video that the Fusha Media team produces. Twitter, Pod, Instagram, Pod. Our company accounts on both platforms are at Media. 
And for good measure, my personal account, at Ryan21L. If you're a company and would like to be a part of this podcast or would like Fusha Media to help you design your own podcast, email me, ryan at fushamedia.com. Finally, I want to finish with this. This is the eighth episode of this podcast, a podcast whose origins came from me saying, fuck it, I'll do it myself. It started with me starting my own company, Fushan Media. I never wanted to start my own business of any kind by myself, but everyone I asked turned me down and desperate to change what I was doing, I said, fuck it, I'll do it myself. When you approach people with some ideas that you're really passionate about and no one else is, you say, fuck it, I'll do it myself. When you lose your clients to a 100-year pandemic and you can't get anyone to host a podcast that you're producing, what do you say? Fuck it, I'll do it myself. I have never been one to be quote-unquote on-air talent. Some of this comes from a learning disability that I have that I wasn't diagnosed with until three years ago. This podcast has actually helped with that. Talking to people that have had working relationships for at least 16 years or longer, this has made me feel comfortable interviewing them because we know each other. This podcast has allowed me to express myself and talk to you. For once, I'm not in the shadows, but in the spotlight. And this all came from me saying, fuck it, I'll do it myself. So remember that. Don't let your circumstances shape you. You shape your circumstances. And don't be a victim. Thank you so much for listening and stay safe. And this may be used for the actual podcast itself, right? Who knows? Yes, it could. In in, in your freewheeling, uh, <laughs> yes, freewheeling <laughs> scenario that you that yes. you've painted here. Yeah. By the way, folks, when I got on this podcast with Ryan, I had no idea I was on. I could have been talking about anything. <laughs>